Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Bruce Fenton. Bruce is the CEO of Chainstone Digital Securities Group. He's a self-described cypherpunk stockbroker, and he's seeking the Republican nomination for U.S. Senator from New Hampshire, running on a platform of peace, prosperity, freedom, and free markets. He's here today to talk about his campaign and some of the issues. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start by talking a little bit about your background before entering politics, and then maybe you could just tell us what inspired you to run for U.S. Senate. Yeah, sure. You know, my background is in finance. You know, that's what I've done my whole life. You know, I was lucky to have a, a mom who worked in the investment business. And so starting it as a little, little kid, you know, I was kind of raised on the floor of a brokerage firm. And then I got my first job when I was four, my first real job there when I was 14. And then when I was 19, I got investment license. So that was, that's when I count myself as a professional. And so that was 30 years ago. So, you know, I've done that kind of my whole life and done a variety of things, retail, institutional, traveled all over the world, you know, done a lot of different things. Most recently, cryptocurrency, you know, getting into Bitcoin about nine years ago, you know, pretty much full time and working on that with the securities business that I came from, you know, so yeah, basically investments and, you know, trying to understand the world and understanding change, you know, understanding what's happening in our world and trying to predict what what's next you know that that's mostly what i focused on in my career so what inspired you to run for the senate you know where we are in the world and and this particular race being a particularly good opportunity i think the world is in a really crucial point right now it's in a point of you know kind of major change and you know there's a great book called the fourth turning which talks about how every century or so we have these times of epic change where you know borders and money and systems and who we trust and all of these other things change, beliefs change. And I think we're clearly in a period like that, a, a very significant period of change. And our world is unrecognizable for just how it was a couple of years ago, is changing very rapidly and very significantly. So I think it's really important to make sure it goes the right way, because I see us going down either a path of freedom or a path of tyranny, you know, a path of, of centralized control and authoritarianism. Or, or a path of decentralized autonomy. And, and it's really, really important to get it right right now. 
now. So, so that's why I'm running because I want to go down there and, and fight for our constitution and human rights and fight against tyranny and government expansion in this crucial time that we're in. I think everybody understands something's wrong. Something is amiss. Everybody's got a different idea about what it is. What are maybe the top two or three issues with the federal government that you think are important? Yeah, I'd say probably number one is monetary policy and the broken fiat system. You know, we what we call dollars are really a scam. And that's not an unpatriotic thing. The ones getting scammed, you know, dollar be sound money, they were backed by gold. And then they changed that to a new system, you know, 5051 50, that can print money from thin air and give it to their cronies. And that's not money. That's a scam. And it's real bad. It not only is it a scam, it's immoral. And it hurts people. It hurts people a lot. It's the, it's the reason that we have these high gas prices and lumber prices and food prices right now. But that is not even the biggest evil about it. The biggest evil about it is that it enables bureaucrats who use the money that they print. They print the money from thin air and then they use it without accountability. You know, in World War II, they had to sell us war bonds to get us to support the war. They don't need to do that anymore. They don't need to sell you on anything. They just print the money from thin air. And they spend it whenever, on whatever they want. And that is actually evil. It's even worse than the horrible economic effects because it leads to drone bombings all over the world, 20-year wars of aggression, you know, Iraqis dying by phosphorus, for-profit prisons, a failed drug war, evil after evil after evil, is, and even obesity. You, know, you can even track obesity with corn syrup subsidies and the agricultural disasters that Nixon put into place in the 70s. Even obesity can be tracked to, to the broken money system. There's all kinds of problems. Education, pretty much everything we look at in our, in our country, you know, race, you know, police issues, education, you know, health, insurance, you know, medical care, drone bombings, the drug war, on and on and on. You can trace all of them back to a broken money system and broken fiat. So that'd be number one. You fix that, you, you, you if you can fix the money, fix the world. That'd be the number one thing. And then, you know, the, the, the other ones, just, you know, stopping the aggression, following the constitution. And I'm very, very concerned about tyranny. And I'm concerned about the export of tyranny from places like China. Well, let me tell you, Bruce, every visitor who comes to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com gets a pop-up offering them a free copy of my ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. So you could probably imagine that you've got a friendly audience here about there being a problem with the monetary system we have now. If you got into the Senate and assuming you could persuade a majority of senators to pass something to address this, what can be done about the dollar, especially considering it's the world reserve currency? How do you start fixing it? Well, you know, as crazy as it sounds, I think we may have some realistic chances of making massive change. This is a six-year term if I were to win. So that that's six years. I, I think six years is a very, very long time in the world that we're in right now. So even, even things that would so, seem sort of out there right now, I think might be possible. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be because we may face such you know massive global and economic turmoil. So, so it, 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 normally these things wouldn't be possible, but, but yes, you could, you could end the Fed. You know, you could start by auditing the Fed and then you could end the Fed. You know, I like Ron Paul's ideas on that. We could ideally get government just more out of the money business and begin more of a separation of money and state the same way we had a separation of church 
and state. You know, we don't really need government to tell us what money is. And there's been many, many times in human history where people have just gravitated towards what they chose as money. Often that was gold. And then governments would adopt the gold because the people chose that as money, not, not the other way around. So we're in, we're in kind of an unusual world now, especially the last 50 years. You know, that's relatively recent history where, you know, this, this grand experiment has gone on. And I think like other times in history, this will, this will come crashing down. So, so who knows what's possible? I almost anything. I mean, we could, we could see us having, you know, more of a Bitcoin standard or a gold standard or, you know, any number of things. And, and as, and again, I know that sounds radical to a lot of people who sort of follow politics as usual, but this isn't 1996, you know, the world of, 2019 and before he's gone. We're in a world that's very, very crazy and chaotic now. And the, the house of cards is going to come collapsing down. And when that happens, there's going to be some, some major action needed. So I hope I'm there to do it. I'd like to talk to the other senators and other representatives about exactly this kind of thing, because I, I think I do understand money. And you know, you know, like it or not, what we've had is a scam recently. We have to get back to sound economic principles and sound money principles. If we do that, we, you know, we've got our, our best years ahead of us as a nation. Let me ask you this. I know this is true for gold. And one of the reasons gold can't be used as currency, despite the existence of the dollar is that if I were to trade some good or service with you for gold, I have to pay a capital gains tax, like I've sold the gold. Is that also true for Bitcoin? As far as you know, if I buy something with my Bitcoin, as things stand right now, is that really like selling Bitcoin and therefore I'm realizing. A yeah, that's the gain. official line. You know, there's some provisions for, I think, under $500 or something like that. I, I, I'm not sure of the, of the latest on it. But yeah, it's, you know, if you, you and a lot of people have gains, especially early holders who, you know, bought way back in the in the in the early days, they have huge gains on their Bitcoin. So if they use it for to purchase something, then yeah, they, they, they they've got a gain. And, and you know, I, I would be in favor of getting rid of that, of course. I think Ron Paul talked in Ed and the Fed of that one of the things you could do was have competing currencies. So in other words, if you just eliminated that tax on Bitcoin, so we're just not going to tax it as a capital gain, same with gold or silver or a number of other things that you would at least compete with the dollar. And I don't know if that eventually brings it to an end or at least keeps the Federal Reserve more disciplined and not abusing it so much. Are there bills out there to do that yet? Or would you sponsor one? Yeah, I, I think moving more towards, you know, multi-currency and currency competition is a great thing. So we should, if, you know, the taxes is one one way to, you know, further that. And there's other things, you know, currency and inv and other investments, securities, commodities, they're all treated slightly differently with different, you know, CFTC or SEC or, or you know, money transmitter licenses in the case of currency. You know, there's different sort of, you know, systems that govern these different, but we should have more more instruments that are considered currency and, and that are that are easy to compete as as real currency, you know, so that would be, you know, I'd definitely be in favor of that, you know, and I think we're headed towards that. I think we're headed towards a multi-currency world. You know, people are going to have the, the Gen Z already on their wallet. They have a little dollars, they have some Ethereum, they have some Bitcoin, and there's people in Africa where they've got a few different currencies on their wallet. And there's, you know, you know, it's, it's more common now, especially over the last 20 years, 20 years ago, everybody had the currency in their country and that was it. And now, so now we do have more opportunities for that and hopefully more currency competition. And, and, and yeah, that will decrease the power of the Fed because they have, they're issuing a bad product. Their, their money is pretty weak. Uh, it's, it's, it wouldn't, survive if it was if it was like a cryptocurrency 
where you just said our monetary policy is people in a fancy building deciding what it is and giving it to their cronies. Nobody would fall for that. You know, the only reason we're falling for it is because it used to be backed and it's got the, you know, branding of America on it. And it, it you know, we're kind of, it's kind of, you know, living on the fumes of its, of its one, once great existence, but that's gone now. The fundamentals are very, very different. So co competition would be great. The more currencies, the better, and people will gravitate. It's called the Cantillion effect. They're naturally going to gravitate towards the more scarce, better form of money. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts a couple of ways by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts of every episode as well as access to my members-only MeWe group, or become an all-access patron and get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos. You can even become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus a free copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there, and you can find links to all of the above at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. Switching gears a little bit, I'm looking at your policy page and you talk about foreign policy. One of the things that we all went through in the 2000s up until 2020 was what they generally called the war on terror. And now we are in a proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. And we hear a lot of noise about how we're threatened by China. What kind of foreign policy would you promote as a senator and, and what can the Congress do as far as changing American foreign policy if it needs to be changed? Well, the first thing we should do is be following the Constitution, which is why I'm against these wars of aggression and I'm against our involvement in 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 other conflicts. I don't think it's our place. I, I don't I, I couldn't tell you. And, and I think even most people with the Ukraine flag in their bio couldn't tell the difference between a Ukrainian troop and a Russian troop. You know, I I, I mean, most most Americans didn't even really hear of, of this conflict. They didn't know anything about it until just very, very, very recently. And we're immediately picking sides with head, which has all kinds of ramifications, not the least of which is is you know, like over $50 billion that, that, that is being spent on this. And it's the same kind of bad foreign policy that led to the war on terror and the 20 year occupation of Afghanistan and the, 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 you know, failures in Iraq. It's, it's this idea that we should be policemen of the world or, or whatever the excuse is, but it's mainly driven by the military industrial complex and a whole bunch of huge, you know, contractors. If you, if you drive in the beltway of DC, you'll just see headquarter after headquarter after headquarter of these deca billion dollar companies. And you'll see all the Dodge Vipers and, 
you know, nice cars driving in in the morning of the, uh, you know, six and seven figure executives working there. That's all paid for by us. It's all paid for by us. And it's all based mostly on lies and, and, you know, very, very ill-advised foreign policy that's being dictated by, you know, crony contractors who, who, and I've been to these meetings, you know, they go into these meetings and they talk about, you know, we have to do this. And it's uh, the entire, you know, uh, you know, fundamentally flawed idea. Like, like invading an entire country to get one guy, you know, these kind of things, it just, they're just fundamentally flawed and, and it's, and it's unsustainable and wasteful. So I'd like to see a, a policy that follows the constitution. I want to get all out of all these military misadventures around the world and stop top drone bombing and creating new generations of terrorists and funding the Mujahideen. You know, we, we, we've trained 15,000 bomb makers in Afghanistan and they made bombs to kill us. It's absurd. It's absurd. So I would be, I'm against, I'm completely against all of that stuff. Well, at least we got the Taliban back in there after 20 years. So yeah, <laughs> it wasn't a total failure. I'm a little, uh, how can I say this? I have a foot in each camp on China. On one hand, I don't like the Chinese government as far as at least what I think I know about it. On the other, the things that they say about China sound an awful lot like the things they said about the terrorists and previously about the Soviets. So it always seems like it's the same slogans and a new enemy. What do you think the U.S. government's stance towards China should be? That's a great, great point. You know, it is it is because I've been critical of China, mainly because I'm concerned about human rights. And I and I think that it's this overall ideology of heavy statism, which I'm against here and I'm against there. It's not my business to be against what China does. They can do whatever they want. But I just don't want those ideas exported here. You know, I think communism is, is an ideology that's very, very antithetical to American values and freedom. You know, the idea of you know freedom to worship, free speech these kind of things. You know, China has, you know, movement passes and a very authoritarian regime that cracks down on speech and things like that. But you're right, we do need to be careful of of kind of, you know, rattling the saber. I don't want to see China like like another USSR situation. You know, people who grew up my age, you know, we were taught, you know, oh, the Russians are horrible. Yeah, they're the evil, terrible, terrible, terrible people. And then finally by the 90s they were like, well, you know, there was that song by Sting like, I hope the Russians love their children too. <laughs> like, like, do they, do they react? They love their children too. You know? And then finally by the nineties, they did these, these, you know, cooperation efforts. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh yeah, they are humans too, you know? And so, so yeah, vilifying, you know, all Chinese or something is, is especially bad, particularly because China and the Chinese people are different from their government. The government is a minority and it's relatively new. You know, they have thousands of years of history that doesn't have anything to do with the current government. So, uh, so yeah, I would, I would, I would have a, a foreign policy that emphasizes those kind of things. You know, we shouldn't be involved in any kind of aggression against China or anybody else. We should resist any sort of outside influences to influence us away from our core values of, of freedom. And, you know, just try and encourage friendship and business and trade between as many people in the world as we can. Do you think that the trade imbalances between us and China are a problem and how would you address them? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because as a, as a libertarian, you know, I don't want to have government involved much in it, but, but, you know, this is one of these more grayer areas because if, if we just don't do anything, we're, we're the victims of unfair trade, you know, that's, you know, imbalanced trade agreements, you know, and, you know, overall, I just I would just like to have, you know, less less government overall. And ho hopefully I, if they want to because the, so the problem. So let's just suppose we had completed fair, free, open trade. We just scrapped all the agreements. You know, that's a, that's a very libertarian and cap position. And, and, you know, 
kind of, I mean, it's, it's way, way oversimplified and I know it doesn't quite work that way. And there are ramifications, but that's, you know, kind of like what I'd like. I, I just don't want government involved in this stuff at all. And if you did that, well, the drawback is that especially short-term China can do all kinds of unfair or, or attempted, they can, they can attempt to use their money and their money, their money printing and the way that they do trade to be unfair, but eventually it evens out. I mean, eventually it's all about supply and demand and what the products are. So I'm a big believer in free markets that eventually it's going to fix. I think that they will, they would probably make a lot of mistakes and they have a lot. And from what I understand, they do a lot of, you know, kind of PR things where they'll build a city, but the city's not, there's no plumbing or something. It's just sort of a media show. And uh, you see that in trade a little bit as, as well. So, so yeah, you know, I'd like to have government involved as, as, as little as possible. And I, I think, I think the free markets would ultimately even out and I'm, I'm, I'm aware it's more complex than I'm aware that there's un, unfair things they can do in the meantime, but, you know, ultimately the idea that we can sort of tinker it away, like, oh, if we just do this or we add this, or we add this to the agreement, you know, I think those, those, th that brings us down a road that's fraught with all kinds of other potential second order effects and, and, and drawbacks that we hadn't anticipated. What do you think of the argument that regardless of what they do, we're better off with just no tariffs at all? And they want to put tariffs on their imports, they can. Is that something that the federal government even has to address? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 kind of what exactly where I'm going with this stuff is just like, you know, why are we trying to second guess things? Let them do what they want. And that's what I mean. You know, I think they'll, they may make mistakes and they may spend a lot of money thinking that they're that they're running the right game. But I just not even be in the game. You know, it's it's consumers that ultimately drive trade. So why does government need to be in there second guessing things? Well, if you give us a tariff, we're going to give you a tariff. It's like, all right, the market's going to figure it out. The market's going to figure it out. I don't think the government should do anything that ever hurts ideally hurts anybody, especially Americans. But, you know, why hurt anybody? Government shouldn't be hurting anybody. Government should just let people do what they want. And if the people want to hurt somebody economically, punish them economically, fine. You know, they stop buying a product or they'll do something else. But, you, you, you know, trade should be like, you know, sand or water, you know, kind of it'll fill out the, the, the you know, the, the lowest spots that it needs to. And it, it, it'll, it'll take care of things on its own, I think, if, if we just let it and leave it alone. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? Got a few minutes, and maybe the last thing we could touch on, since it's been such a contentious issue, 
is education, which there's a lot of fighting going on at local school boards. Is there anything for the federal government to do to address some of the disagreements about what children should be taught, the curriculum, critical race theory, and all of those arguments? What can the U.S. government do, if anything? I agree with all those arguments, but I don't want the government involved in it. You know, I don't want the federal government. I want them involved less. I like what Representative Thomas Massey proposes, which is a it's a one basically a one sentence bill that says this this bill abolishes the Department of Education. I don't want them doing anything with education. I don't want them at a federal level telling our I, actually there is one exception to that. There is one exception to that. The proper role of government is to protect life, liberty and property of people. There is one ex, one exception where I, I would want government involved, and that's to protect the rights of parents. To, because you're you 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 can't let local school board tyrants run over parents' rights. You, you know the one legitimate role of the state government is to protect against that. And if the state government is not doing that, then the federal government should. So if if the state is failing at protecting parental rights, then then uh, but but any federal law I I view as an absolute last 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 resort. I don't want the federal government involved in it, like I said, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be in favor of any any expansion of, of of federal government at all. But one one legitimate role of federal government is to protect, like for example, with you know when they had segregated schools, federal federal we sent federal federal marshals in and said no, you're, you're not you're not doing that, not, you know you're not you're not going to do that, and and that. <laughs> you know, ideally that would have been handled at a state level. You know, I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not waving that as a success, but, but, you know, you know, on a state level, I'd like to see the states, you know, not allowing these school boards to run over parent parental rights, but, and, and ultimately have it handled as locally as possible, you know, as, 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 as locally as possible with this little federal government or as little, a little state government as possible, you know, but we, but you do got to protect the rights of parents because, because some parents have been uh, abused lately. And it's very hard to fight on a school board by school board level because you, you know, it's, it's extraordinarily hard to get even 30 parents together. And most of the bylaws and such enable school boards and local tyrants to have probably more power than they should over parents and kids. Maybe just say one thing about, in a nutshell, what are those parental rights and what if different states, let's say, disagree about what parental rights are? Yeah, I mean, one thing that bothered me a lot was this COVID tyranny. You know, I, I feel that the mask is a political signal. I don't feel it's effective. And in our case, we had a school board where they weren't wearing a mask and they're telling the kids to wear masks. So to me, it wasn't about they, because they were concerned about health. And even if they were, that's, that's, that's my business, not their business. I, I, everybody should be able to make their own health decisions. So I went into eight school board meetings. I got removed by police five times. I wouldn't wear the mask. I refused to wear the mask because it's a political signal. So one thing that the parents should have the right is to be free of having a political signal. They don't have the right to tell my kid to wear a mask any more than they have the right to tell my kid to wear a MAGA hat. It's just not their right. That's a political signal. So that's one right, you know, and that that's an example, actually. You know, I, I would like to see the state step in and I, I would have liked to see the state of New Hampshire say, no, you don't have a right to tell. A kid. And I think if you brought it in front of a judge and it was a MAGA hat, if you had a, a principal who says every kid who wants to play soccer, you got to wear a MAGA hat hat, clearly a judge would say that that is not proper use of, of in a public school. So the only difference is whether I'm correct in saying that it is a political signal or not. And I think I could make a solid case for that. So that's one example. Other things are where when, when you interfere with people's personal religious beliefs, a lot of this CRT, you know, just fundamentally different views. I live in a very lefty town and there's a lot of people that have fundamentally different views about race and diversity and things like that. And I respect that. I just don't want my tax dollars being spent to teach my kids something that I fundamentally disagree with. I don't believe that some 
somebody's skin color is the most important defining characteristic about them. I don't want my kids putting people in boxes based on what religion or what skin color, or what gender ID they want. I want them judging people by the content of their character and their words and who they are and what they do, not by what shade of skin color they have. So if, if, if somebody wants to run their life that way and they want to teach their kids to judge people by skin color or race, that's their business, but I don't want it done with my tax dollars and I don't want it done in my school. So I would, I would like to see, you know, limits on that. And that th those are, these are some of the very, very few legitimate roles of government, you know, especially when you have something like public schools to say, you know, you, you, you can't really, you know, t t you know, spend our resources to teach something that's partisan or is against the religious or moral beliefs of, of parents. That's just very disrespectful. I, and, and if there's e even just a little bit of, even if it's just a minority of parents, even if there's just a couple percent of parents who are, you know, rednecks or Muslims or Jewish or whatever, whatever group it is that doesn't jive with the, with the rest, they, they need to be respected. Those people need to be respected and their rights must be respected. And, and if it's not, it doesn't have a place in the public school, you know, stick to math and chemistry and science and English and literature and these kind of things. All right. So we were talking a little bit back and forth with your scheduling people about getting this interview scheduled earlier in the week, but it seems like you were tied up for 36 hours or so. Can you tell us what you were up to and why you did it? Yeah. So in honor of the uh, the Senate filibuster, senators on the U.S. Senate floor, if they hold the floor, they can hold the floor as long as they are talking. So in honor of that, and Joe Biden wants to get rid of that because he doesn't want senators holding up things that he, you know, he, he wants done. And it's a power that, you know, even one senator can hold something up for as long as they hold the floor. So there's been some famous filibusters in history where senators have given very, very long speech. Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, both around 14 hours. The record was 25 hours or the record was 24 hours, 18 minutes. So I set out to do a filibuster kind of in honor of the Senate filibuster in defense of the Senate filibuster and kind of a, an overall campaign event. And also something to say, you know, there's a transparency that I, I pride myself in, in the campaign, which is I'll take questions from anybody. So I took open questions from the public for 33 hours. I made it 33 hours and nine minutes. I could have gone a little bit longer, but I talked the whole time. There was, there was only a, you know, a few, a few uh, you know, the longer questions. We always kept them under five minutes. So there's a couple, you know, there's a lot of 30 second questions, a couple four minute questions. The, the rest of the time I was talking <laughs> and answering questions. I answered every single question that we got from, from voters, unfiltered, unscripted. I didn't have anybody telling me what to say. And I think we should have, we should demand that of politicians. They don't have to do 33 hours, but I'd challenge them to do three. I'd challenge any elected official, including my, my, the incumbent who is my opponent. I would challenge her to do three. And I know, I think we all know that she wouldn't. And I think we all know that president Biden would not. And president Biden <laughs> is simply not capable of it. Couldn't, couldn't possibly do it even with one reporter, let alone multiple people. So yeah, I, I thought it was kind of a fun, I thought it'd be a fun campaign. I do a lot of small events. I said, why don't I do one big giant, giant speech? And I wasn't sure how long I'd make it. I thought my voice could give, but I, I, I you know, I'm glad I made it the 24. If I would have known I was going to make it the 24 hours, I might've hyped it up a little bit more, <laughs> but it was fun. And I got a great response to it. It's a good experience. And I mean, it's proof of work. I mean, it is something that not everybody can do. Let's just face it. it, it and no politician in the history of America has ever taken questions open that long. It's just never been done. And, and, I, and I broke a record of speaking longer than any senator has ever spoken on the floor of the U.S. Senate by nine hours. And the video's there. It's proof. Anybody can see it. It's proof of work. They can see it that after 20, uh, 33 hours, I was still 
you know, at least as coherent as I am now, you know, so, so I thought it was fun. It was, it was, it was good. Probably won't do it again until I get down there. If I get down in office and there's a good reason for it, you better believe it. And I could break that record too, if I need to, if it's going to help liberty and freedom, I'll absolutely have that tool in my back pocket. And every single Senator will know that I can do it because I just did. So you're going for the Republican nomination in the primaries to be the Senate nominee. Did you ever consider the Libertarian Party? And is it an option to try to get the nomination from both Republican and Libertarian? I don't know if you can get both. I don't think that the party rules would would permit it. Some of the local party rules don't even like you to sign the ballots for the Libertarians. I signed the ballot for the Libertarian candidate. I know that'll anger some Republicans, but I believe in liberty and I believe in anybody who's furthering liberty. And frankly, if Republicans don't get their act together, there's going to be more and more on the liberty side. You know, there are Republicans that, uh, you know, we call rhinos that what's the point? I mean, as Republicans are voting to take our gun rights away, like, you know, but why there's no need for party loyalty to those types of people. The party loyalty that I have to the Republicans is the liberty wing of the Republicans. So, so yeah, I would I would definitely consider it, or I would have considered it. I, I don't, you, this is a winnable race, and it's very very difficult to win as a libertarian. But but it, as a Republican, I absolutely can win. All I got to do is win the the primary, and then I'd be the nominee, and then I'd get you know, pretty much every Republican, no, no Republican's going to look at me and say, well, he's Republican, but I, I like Maggie Hassan better because he, he's too, he's too libertarians. No, no way. You know, there, I do get a, occasional, you know, old school Republicans. They drugs is probably the biggest thing that, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of ending the drug war and legalizing drugs. That's probably the number one thing that kind of old school Republicans take issue with, but they, they shake my hand and say, hey, I agree with all your other stuff. And a lot of them say they're going to vote for me. So and meanwhile, ironically, that issue is almost number one among the, the youths and the Democrats and independents. So it, so it's I, I'm not going to lose probably those people in the general. They're going to vote for me anyway. I, I would lose no votes from that. But I gain a bunch of votes for it. I'm the most electable you know, of the primary candidates because I can bring in the most free staters and independents and libertarians and even some Democrats. And that's that's the trick in a, in a, in a, in a primary. A lot times people go, you know, far, far, far right to the base because that's who votes. But you got to be thinking about the general in the general. I'm the most electable for sure. All right. Well, Bruce, where do people find out more about your campaign, contribute, all that sort of thing? Awesome. Thank you. BruceFenton.com, F-E-N-T-O-N. That's my website. That's also my handle for, for, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm active on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, these kind of things. I even do TikTok videos. I do a lot of videos. I'm, I'm very accessible. I, I give out my mobile number. I think it's right on my Twitter. It's certainly on the website, you know, my, my mobile. I, I And I answer it. It's right here. It's a, my real mobile. I answer it as much as I can. And I'll, especially if it's text, I'll try and t- a text back. And so, yeah, I try and be accessible. And I, you know, I urge people in New Hampshire to vote for me and share my content and donations are very, very well used. We're very cautious with how we spend and it will be, you know, basically spent towards educating people about these ideas of liberty and freedom. And and that's it. There's no consultants. There's no handlers. I don't have any of that kind of campaign apparatus. We rely heavily on, on volunteers and, you know, kind of unconventional, you know, ways of, of getting the message out. Sounds good. We'll link to all that on the show notes page. I wish you the best of luck in the primary race and hopefully the general election. And thanks so much for stopping by and spending this time today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Keep up the great work and all that you do. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here including joining my Patreon or my Substack. 
And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.